0: Hey Tomas, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: Pretty good, pretty good.
1: Um, I'm curious
0: to hear from you, I, I know security isn't necessarily something that a lot of kids when they're growing up are sort of aspiring to get into. Um, you know, personally speaking, I wanted to be an astronaut or something similar. So I'd love to hear from you a little bit about how um, how you got into security and um, where you developed an interest in computers and um, I guess how you ended up where you are now.
1: Yeah, that's that's a very interesting story. <clears throat> so I grew up in Eastern Europe at, um, and the, the cool thing about that was back in the early, very early 90s. Computers weren't really a thing in in Eastern Europe, and I remember my dad in the in nineteen ninety actually bringing home the first computer, and it was such this magical thing that he was working on um, as uh, initially as a teacher. It was this curiosity of oh, what is this thing that works on power, and Dad is sitting in front and like typing on and doing weird things with, and. As time grew, this curiosity towards this magical box that we had at home, that curiosity naturally grew and grew and grew to the point where at a super young age, I really started learning it, playing with it, initially playing games, and then later starting to write applications. And then in school, already starting to make it do things that it was not really intended to do. Um, I remember I was in sixth grade when, uh, the thing that I really wanted to do is rewrite Tetris, uh, in uh Berlin Pascal. And my dad was like, okay, okay. You're going to need to now learn trigonometry and all of that fun stuff. So did that. And in these times, Romania was still not as developed from a security and infrastructure perspective either. And we got our first always-on internet and my first WAN IP was a 192.168. And we were like didn't seem weird at the time. Now it's like, what do you mean, right? So we were in a citywide LAN and I, I started to get accustomed to certain tools that were available on, on IRC forums and whatnot. And I just saw what they can do. Like, wait, I can laterally move around networks and get into someone else's computer without them noticing. And it was this curiosity towards making computers do things that were not initially intended them for to, for them to do. And then in high school, um, my high school at one point decided to lock down. So you couldn't install games. You could just use the applications, um, that were installed. So we made it a sport with me and a friend of mine to see. How can we bypass that block? And we didn't do anything malicious with it. We just went to our teacher and said, well, you tried, you failed. Here's how we did it. That landed me in quality engineering, went over to engineering, and this curiosity never went away, and then landed in security.
0: Awesome. I think computers have evolved quite a lot from an era where you're kind of working on a citywide land to... Um, mm-hmm. Where they are today, and I'm guessing security from your perspective has changed quite a lot as well. And it's not yeah. just a case of SSHing into somebody else's computer. So, um, in terms of today, mm-hmm. obviously you've got a role at Circle in security. Um, what does that look like, and what does security actually mean for you today?
1: Yeah, so I'm the senior director of security Engineering at Circle, and I'm, I'm mainly here just to represent myself and, and talk about uh, talk about my views, right? Um, so my role is really looking at the prevent side um, of the for circle. So I really focus on uh, product security and cloud security and, and look at our blockchain uh, things. And and I'm going to answer more in a general sense of, hey, what does security mean to me? I think it's one of the most important things that we could be working on. Looking at how the industry has changed in the past decade, we went from a world where people are the product to privacy and security being the product itself. People are a lot more hesitant in sharing their data. They're a lot more hesitant in sharing their photos and and being that really open about who they are, what they are. The world has become incredibly small with the advent of social media and whatnot. And we've seen the negative impact that it can have through Influence through not really being able to say, to say what is a true tweet or what is a true social media post to like influence into elections or influence into outcomes of, of how people think and, and whatnot. So for me, security and privacy means a lot because we need to get down to the base, the neutral basics of what we were used to back in the, what I'm going to say, the nineties and two thousands when Journalism was was fully trustable. It wasn't influenced uh, through other means. You, you weren't influenced and trusted by fake news or anything of that nature. So that that's why I'm in this, is actually really protecting the world at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think your background is a little bit interesting in that you are coming from both a technical security angle, but also privacy as well. I know you spent some time at um, Meta or, I guess, then Facebook. Um, how did you make the switch from privacy into security or did you just see it as a natural progression?
1: So what was interesting in my role at at, uh, at Facebook, it was actually I was leading security compliance uh, for Novi, which was Facebook's blockchain initiative and eventually became the interim CISO. And as part of, of trying to figure out where to place the privacy program, the privacy program was placed with the CISO. So it was placed into my organization. But I always look at privacy in the matter of if you don't do uh, security right, you can't have privacy. If you don't do privacy right, you also can't have proper security. For me, the two go hand in hand in today's world, because if you don't, if you really don't focus on both, how can you build user trust? How can you be in a world where you say, hey, consumer, we're doing or business, we're doing X, but in the background, we're doing complete- something completely different. So privacy, transparency, et cetera, are very, very critical for me. And the, honestly, the transition is very, very natural because a lot of the things that you do in security inherently do help privacy. It's more of the other compliancy elements of privacy that you need to learn. There's a lot of things that you need to learn about it as well, but it's a very natural transition into one to the other.
0: Yeah. And I think placement within an organization is something that we hear all the time. You know, we speak with a bunch of different companies that are on either end of the spectrum. You know, for some companies, security is kind of uh, very compliance driven. It's based on checklists of uh, security controls and even organizational controls that need to be implemented. But then on the other hand, there's this kind of new wave of companies that treat security as kind of an engineering problem. And um, so I'm curious if you think there's a right way of doing that. Um, you know, I don't really have a good answer for it myself, but if you were starting a security team from scratch, what would
1: it look like? Honestly, it really depends on way too many things. And I don't believe that there is one, one single answer that is absolutely correct. Um, I'm, I'm an engineer in a second line function today and I'm, I'm doing really, really well. I'm doing the, the, the work that needs to be done as a, as a traditional second line function. Um, I've been in roles where I've been a first line function. I don't believe that just simply looking at these traditional lines is the path forward. It really needs to be, what does the business actually need? We're in the business of protecting the company and providing inherently oversight on what is going on inside of a business. Whether you label it as first line and say you also operate controls as well as oversight, or you just provide oversight, is really going to depend on... On the type of business and the type of regulation that is expected, I'm not going to say one or the other is is right, because in both cases, you're going to have teams that just don't neatly fit into that particular model. And with overall this push into the DevSecOps world, where where there's this push to get as many things upstream as possible, to to give as many transparent controls and opportunities over to engineers as possible. As, as you can to make it as frictionless as possible for them. It's going to be a mixture of both worlds. Um, the, honestly, the, the type of companies and type of other CISOs that, that I enjoy working with the most is, is the hybrid ones, is the one that really understand the compliance world, but also understand the engineering world. Because I always said in a previous life, I always said my role is a translator. I need to be able to translate between compliance intent and engineering speak. Because if you just look at compliance and regulation as a checkbox and you can only play within that checkbox, it's gonna be incredibly hard to innovate, especially in the FinTech world, we a very heavily reg- regulated world. But if you look at it from the world of understanding the intent of the regulation and translating it that that down to particular controls, then you can actually be very, very creative with your solutions, but you need to be able to pull that back and translate that back to to regulators around like, look, this is how we're interpreting it. And this is how we're meeting it. Let me walk you through all the things we're solving by going this way versus going the traditional way. And I've had large success with with taking that path.
0: I think the point about distilling compliance and regulation down to simple rules or code is super interesting. Obviously, if you look at um, infrastructure over the last number of years, uh, developers shifted from ClickOps to using things like Terraform or CloudFormation to just Mm -hmm. define their infrastructure as code. Um, Do you think that'll happen in security? And um, if yes, what's missing for that to be the case today?
1: Absolutely. I'm, I'm aware of several startups that are effectively working on what I call compliance as code. Uh, there are several startups that already have started more programmatically looking at IAM, more programmatically looking at privacy, programmatically looking at security, programmatically looking at detection, event, etc. cetera. Um, what I really think is missing at this point is is a more solid compliance as code company to really come and revolutionize this space of really bringing in, bringing these tools together in a manner where through a GitHub push, I'm defining what policies matter to me the most, what rules matter to me the most, and what are the automated uh, evidence gatherings that I want to get and parse in an automated manner, instead of humans just taking a look at the evidence, et cetera, and testing that is, that is all good. So for me, it's a matter of time. Um, as I said, there are several startups that I'm super duper excited about that are in the stealth phase right now that are working on on this particular problem, several here in the United States, several in, in Europe, um, I think it's inevitable that compliance as code is going to be the next thing. And engineers are going to be able to write compliance rules and go from there.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think one of the challenges that I've been trying to grapp- sort of grapple with in my head is that um, if you look at something like infrastructure as code, if you're an engineer on a product team that's looking to build something you know, you need a database, you need servers, you need some way of actually running your software. Um, whereas with security teams and just security in general, um, it seems like a lot of these security teams are spending a huge chunk of their time basically fighting entropy within the companies, you know, um, product teams with deadlines to get new features shipped and infrastructure is a requirement for that. Whereas security is one of these things that, uh, in a lot of companies, it's just very easy to kick down the road because it's not a problem until it's a problem. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious how you've gone about, um, either at circle or elsewhere, just competing with product priorities and, um, huge sprawling roadmaps that just need to get done and making sure that people actually implement this stuff?
1: So throughout my career, one of the things that I always said is security is not a police. Security is there to actually enable and help the business succeed, right? Like if if we look at it from the lens of, oh, we're only going to ship something if it has perfect security, just shut down your company, go home, that there's no such thing as a, as a company with perfect security. There's always risk that you take on. And The lens that you need to put on is, how much risk are you actually willing to take on? What is your overall risk appetite? And how are you going to measure that? And and systemically and objectively, have statements that say, I'm comfortable with this amount of risk, right? And if you can get to that particular level of maturity and language and, and process where product comes in and says, hey, we have this idea, Go figure out high-level risks. Cool. We can distill that down. As the product idea matures, security risks start maturing as well. Privacy risks start maturing as well. Compliance risks start maturing as well in terms of what could theoretically happen. And then you can give guideposts of like, this is how the the highway or the product should be built. Like These are the things that you need to really be aware of, right? And the more you inform the product and the business about all the different ways things can go wrong and go well, it's going to shape their product roadmap as well, right? And as upstream as you are possible in in the design phase, the easier it's going to be for them to design in that timeline the thing that they need to design and build, right? So if security and privacy and all of these functions are organically built into the product lifecycle, you're not competing for, for deadlines anymore, right? Are they going to be able to implement everything? Perfectly No, but that's also not the not the expectation. There's going to be always a set of requirements. there's always going to be a set of recommendations and always going to be a set of fast follows. And as long as you can say, hey like I'm okay with this level of risk, fast follow can be done, then fast follow it and that that is it. And teams are very much receptive to this because the approach you're taking is I'm enabling the business. I'm giving the business the perspective of how to actually get these things done versus I'm a gate at the end. Nobody likes a gate at the end. They, they want partnership at the front, so they know we're on the same boat.
0: Yeah, something we talk a lot about is day zero security. So just the idea that people integrate security into um, like the fabric of the software that they're building. And I think uh, you know you spend a lot of time in payment security, which I think is a particularly interesting instance of this, um, both from your time at Merca and I guess at Circle as well. Mm-hmm. If you're building a new product in, let's call it traditional payments, so you're handling credit card data, um, a lot of the security conversations and ideas stem from things like PCI compliance. Um, but crypto is obviously much newer and um, honestly just doesn't really have this overarching regulatory framework. so uh, one of the sort of phrases that you repeated a lot there was risk. And, uh, you know, risk, I think, is the way that all these new companies, when they're not being kind of overburdened by these compliance regulations, have to think about. So, you know, if you're a two person startup and you want to build your product and you want to launch a debit card, you need to be PCI compliant. So you just follow 300 different controls. But I'm curious in companies that don't necessarily have that um compliance requirements, how can we encourage them to just think more about um, risk as the core reason that they should do things? Because in a lot of cases, these are company ending events.
1: So... Looking at the Web3 ecosystem in general, one of the things that I noticed, and I was very pleasantly surprised, is the industry is a lot more security forward than the traditional Web2 space. I've seen small startups, one- or two-person startups, actually have a surprisingly mature security mindset when it came to actually building their product, way more mature than, uh, uh, let's say... a random startup that just decides to, to pull certain tools together. And for example, they, they don't care about any specific regulation. I I know of a a company, uh, in, in the past that I worked with that, uh, was under HIPAA and HIPAA self-certification, right? So while they had the regs, they very well in private back rooms admitted that they're not hundred percent needing it. Right. So, but in the web three world. Even how quickly things move and how quickly you're gonna get exploited, it's not not the same thing because you're gonna have either a nation state or a hacker or someone come after you really really quickly and your money is gone and it's gone forever. In in more the Web two world, there's a lot more risk and ap- uh, risk appetite overall from what I've seen. So i'm I'm really happy how web three is is developing in this sense with with a lot more security mindset.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that kind of blows my mind a little bit about web three and crypto in general is that um if you look at traditional security, if you're securing a bank or um, you know a payment processor or something, defense and depth kind of makes sense. Like if you just sort of make it incrementally harder to get to all these different uh, parts of your system mm-hmm. and even if there is a breach, you can probably claim it back to the banking system or whatever. If you look at crypto, you Know that the private key is effectively the money. So, if you have a wallet and you have a billion dollars in that wallet, and um, the security of that just gets distilled down to you know 32 bytes or, or maybe even less in certain cases if you're using a, a much older crypto system. Um, it, it boils down to that much security. So, and um, to your point, once it's gone, it's gone. Um, does security end up being designed totally differently in a world where, um, the security of and safety of money is tied to a, an individual wallet, private and public keeper?
1: So Inherently, yes, but that's not the direction I would love to see the world go to. Um, is really like, as an example, this is my ledger. This is, this is my cold storage of funds. This is the thing that has those bytes for the things that I own in the crypto world. Um, but I strongly believe that a lot of these security practices, like the utilization of HSMs and specialized hardware for encryption and decryption and, and storing private keys in 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 secure, well-thought-out, well-architected manner is something that we should be reusing, not only in the crypto space, in the Web3 ecosystem, but also in the Web2 ecosystem, right? Because if you think a lot of these, these, these things that we've learned in the Web3 world, they can help with tenant separation in a Web2 application. It can help with, with privacy. It can help with IAM. It can help with with all of these different things to ensure that data doesn't get commingled where data doesn't need to get commingled. So, and and to go back a little bit to your question, do we think a little bit differently when it comes to to securing uh, keys that protect money versus keys that protect something else? Yes, but the fundamental concepts are very, very similar, right? It's private keys and it's hierarchy of keys, it's PKIs, it's certificates, et cetera. It's really building on what we've learned in the past 20, 30, 40 years since HTTPS and, uh, and SSL has been a thing and certificates have been a thing. We're just building further on top of it and utilizing additional uh, additional um, technologies around it. Now, the other thing, in my view, that has quite changed the landscape a bit is technologies like multi-party computation or threshold signing and all of the different techniques that you can utilize to really remove single points of failure. And this is also a technique that I really want to see how we can bring to the more traditional world as well, where a single compromise of a, of, of a service shouldn't lead to compromise of data, right? Like there's always two or three things that would need to be compromised in order for you to get access to enough entropy for you to actually get access to decrypted data. It's very easy translatable into traditional sense and not only to finance sense.
0: Yeah, because one of the things that people talk about a lot when it comes to crypto is that um, it's more secure, which I think is somewhat true. But it seems that everybody focuses on almost anything imaginable except for the key itself. And you know, they kind of forget mm-hmm. that keys are kind of a single point of failure here. And I think moving towards things like multi-party computation or Shamir secret sharing or whatever to spread risk is, is great. But uh, it brings me back to a conversation that I think we had before where you mentioned something along the lines of how encryption and IAM are inextricably linked. And that Mm -hmm. engineering work going forward shouldn't be focused on how you can do more things with keys, but it should be restricting access to keys in the first place where you're actually authorizing all operations that happen on it. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your views on that. And if it's something that you've explored at all from a technical perspective.
1: Um, I have, and and I've actually worked with uh, several companies to explore more of these ideas and more of um, more of what I call real-time access. the reality is the, the way we do just in time access, et cetera, is what I would call an enroll based access is, is I would call almost antiquated. We have the computational power to, uh, nowadays to do real time analysis and real time, and real time views into should Thomas have access to this particular system that you're trying to, that I'm trying to, let's say, either SSH into or the database that I'm trying to access or the data that I'm trying to decrypt, right? The, those decisions nowadays can be done in a super duper quick manner based on massive risk models that could be built out. But what could be really, really cool is, let's say I get an entitlement and that entitlement allows me to unlock an encryption key that is now able to decrypt that, that, that data set that is fully encrypted. What that actually means, I have now full traceability to actually decrypted that data through logs, right? The same way as with AWS, I, I know I can, tr- uh, I can uh, trace a routing from all the way from the internet where it hit my uh, hit my boundary all the way down to the deepest node because AWS offers these features. I want to be able to do that with identity as well. And honestly, the best way to do that is through cryptography and through encryption, because every service that I pass through in order to get access to something just tags on a signature, tags on another signature, tags on another signature. And somewhere if I try to fake something, that signature becomes invalid. And it's immediately going to alert into systems that, hey, I'm doing something weird, right? So I, I really think we're underutilizing encryption and signatures nowadays as it relates to detection capabilities. And yes, it's a lot of things to build, um, but it can give a lot of insight into overall behavior and how people are moving around different systems.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you're preaching to the choir a little bit here. Um, it's definitely something that we think a lot about in terms of our long-term product roadmap. Um, but one of the interesting things you sort of alluded to there is the idea of tracing versus kind of straight up restriction. Uh, you know, a lot of security, I think people, people imagine it as kind of you're trying to stop things from happening. Um, but there's also a major element of seeing what has happened in the past. You know, if there's a, a minor data breach for a particular account, being able to go back and see, you know, what happened and when, um, you know do you think we're kind of focusing on the right balance of these things in modern security like are we focusing too much on prevention over um tracing or should it be the other way around or do you think it's just right
1: um I still believe we're in the world where we're way too reactive and not focusing sufficiently on prevent because if we would be primarily focusing on prevent we would have tools like this already built in so um i I still don't think the industry as a whole has, what I would call single pane of glass available yet around what is going on in an entire ecosystem, because everyone is still, in every company that I've worked with or or chatted with, the the main theme is we're still catching up to gain as much visibility into what's happening within our systems. Um, We need to be shifting a lot more towards prevent and natively having these capabilities just ready to go Versus just that this constant react mode that we're
0: in. Yeah. I think a lot of the time when people think about making a decision to proactively prevent breaches, they spend too much time just assuming that it's not going to happen to them. Um, so I'm curious from your perspective, are there, um, and this is somewhat masochistic, I guess, but is there a data breach that you've heard of or, or worked, worked on, you know, uh, even just from a, a third party that you find super interesting
1: or, um, particularly scary? Um, for me, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit since we originally talked, for me, I have to say Log4j was the one that, that like really was like, oh, this is bad, but bad in the sense of like, everyone is impacted by this, right? And what, what really amazed me about that incident is how the different security communities really came together to share information as quickly as possible and as quickly as possible to implement different controls to actually mitigate that particular issue. I'm in several uh, community security communities with other CISOs and other security professionals and the amount of information we shared in terms of indicators of compromise, potential rules that may work, potential avenues that you can take in order to mitigate against the issue or slow down any particular issue or even how you can test certain variations of lock 4 j as it was being discovered by, by researchers inside of in, uh, different companies, really showed that this is a small community and, and the community is really about helping each other out to make sure that nobody really gets, gets compromised. Yes, the companies may be, comp- let's say two companies may be competing, but their security teams aren't competing. They're helping each other. And this is insanely massive for me with something like lock4j or something that bad uh, as lock4j was, um, because it means I, I have to say like uh, 50 humanity restored, because like, if we can't come together in, in, a big insecurity incident like this, that literally could break the internet, then I don't know when, when else can we? So it was really, really a lot of work for everyone going through that. Um, but it was really, really humbling to see how the industry came together.
0: Yeah, I remember being blown away um, at how quickly the narrative in you know, security media and even on Twitter and so on changed from, we're all screwed to, um, this is actually okay because security have come together and fixed this right now. So it's great that everybody reacted quickly, but I'm curious, like, has there been, do you think there's been more work done to stop this from happening again? Or um, is it only a matter of time before there's another log4j? Um.
1: I'm always of the mindset that it's only a matter of time. Um, security is, and security breaches are always a question of when and not if. Uh, are we going to have big things like Lock4j again? I think the likelihood is going down and trending towards, towards zero, but I don't think we're ever going to say, no, it can't happen ever again.
0: Very interesting. And shifting gears a little bit, um, just in general, I'm curious for your own developments, are there security teams or security products that you admire, and um, either just from how they've built their products or designed their products or um, just how they've impacted your life in general?
1: So there is a pretty interesting team that I've had the opportunity to visit several times, and that's the Microsoft security team, primarily the Response Center up in Redmond. Uh, the work that that team does up there uh, to really track ongoing attacks, not only in the Windows ecosystem or the Microsoft ecosystem, but globally. And some of the attacks that they're able to thwart, to thwart down and like really prevent real world harm, for me has been absolutely inspiring. And they're an amazing group of people over there. Um, and it's been really, really great seeing their operations center um, of, of all the things that are ongoing in the internet and, and how they're working to actually prevent harm. Um, so I'm gonna say kudos to the MSRC team.
0: Yeah, and I think just the um, the shift that Microsoft have made in the last number of years towards sort of open source and being community first has been um, yeah hugely mm-hmm. impressive. And they're at the team that really, I aspire to be like as well, or to be part of as well. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious from a technology perspective, is there one technology that you're most excited about in security that you think will have a big impact over the next say five, 10 years?
1: Most definitely. Um, I mentioned that I actually work with quite a few startups, um, early stage startups, and, and I can't really disclose some of the things that they're working on. But the combination of Web3 and the combination of security and the combination of threat intelligence and what's going to be possible with this open and transparent world really, really has me excited about What's going to be possible if we properly leverage tools and that are being built right now by, I'm going to say the next generation of founders that grew up with web three instead of building web three. So stay tuned because I'm, I'm seeing a couple of very, very interesting companies on the horizon.
0: I definitely will. So it's very exciting. Um, Tomas, it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you Mm -hmm. taking the time. Um, Where can people find you on the internet? What's the best place for people to get in touch?
1: Uh, Best place, and thank you for having me. Uh, It's been really, really absolutely a pleasure. Best place to find me is LinkedIn is Tomas Henning and also my Twitter is Tomas Henning.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Tomas.
1: Thanks.